Welcome, everyone. Um, thank you so much for being here. My name is Sonia Munshi, and I'm the Interim Executive Director of the Asian American Asian Research Institute at CUNY. And we're delighted to present this conversation today on gender justice in Indo-Caribbean communities. This event is co-organized by ARI, the Guyanese Students Association, and the Department of Urban Studies. Um, we wanna offer a special thank you to Dr. Natalie Vena for initiating this collaboration, and also Dr. Tari Hum for securing sponsorship and support for this event. Um, before I pass the mic on to my co-moderator, um, Yashoda Debbie Dale, I want to just um, acknowledge that this conversation is going to hopefully be inspiring and hopeful, and it may also include difficult um, feelings. We're talking about really hard issues in our communities. There are a lot of different resources um, that can support you if you want to talk about any of these issues further, including the organizations that our panelists are part of. Um, I've left my business card up on the table in the back where the beverages are, so if you need to contact any of us after the panel, you should feel free to contact me and then I can connect you to others. And also during the event, please feel free to take care of yourself. If you need to take a break, take a step outside, grab a beverage, do whatever you need to do to feel good and present in the space as you need. So I'll pass it over to my co-moderator. Hi everyone, thank you for coming. My name is Yashoda Debideal and I'm the secretary of GSA. So we are happy to welcome our panelists who are all leaders within the Indo-Caribbean community. Simone Dingur, Shivana Jorawar, co-directors of Jihaji Sisters, Mohamed Q. Amin, founder and executive director of the Caribbean Equality Project, Aminta Kilowan Narain, founder and director of South Queens Women's March. So, thank you all for coming. We would like to start the panel by learning more about all of you. Please tell us a little about yourself and how you became involved in work on gender justice. Hi everyone, uh, so my name is Mohamed Kiyomin. I am the founder and executive director of Caribbean Equality Project, and we were founded in 2015 in response to anti-LGBTQ hate violence. In 2013, my brother, partner, and I survived a hate crime incident in Richmond Hill, Queens, and for the first time, we had to really reconcile with the fact that being queer, being Indo-Caribbean, being an immigrant, and being a Muslim, these intersectional identities were not all affirmed in Richmond Hill, Queens. But what did happen after that was our community partners, many of whom are here, um, Sadna, Jahaji sisters, Aminta at the time was a uh, co-founder, still co-founder of Sadna, we were able to host a rally, an anti-hate rally in Richmond Hill, Queens, one of the first rallies that have ever been organized to talk about these issues. And from then to now, we have just grown as an organization, um, but I'll talk a little bit more about that work when that time comes. Uh, but I wanna say that as a Queens College graduate, I'm so excited to return back. I wanna give a special shout out to the Guyanese Students Association. When I was here, a Guyanese Student Association did not exist. Um, so I kudos to y'all for leading it and for having me here today. All right. So hi, everybody. My name is Aminta Kilowan Narayan. Thank you so much to everyone who had a part in making this platform available to us. When I was in college, 
we didn't have conversations like this. And I'm so grateful to be sitting before you today. I should also say this. Uh, I was thinking, because one of the things you want to know is how did this all get started for me specifically? My dad came from Guyana, and in Guyana he was a working class labor organizer. And he really was very outspoken then. And he brought that here to America and forced me to do things as a child that I didn't understand at the time, including going and picketing and holding up posters, and I hated it. I was like, this is not me. I'm naturally an introvert. This is not my space. And I, I had a hard time doing all of that. But as I grew up, I realized the need to speak up. When I was a child, I recognized that I didn't feel comfortable speaking out even in the classroom. And yesterday, my dad was telling me, you know, Minty, when you were, they call me Minty at home. Minty, when you were a child, the teachers used to always say you never participated in class. And they would say you're always going to be a follower and never a leader. And it's interesting because that was very much what I felt my truth was. I felt uncomfortable even speaking up. My, even though I was born and raised here, my vocabulary, having been raised by my grandma and my mom and dad, I sounded very much Guyanese, sounded like I was born in Guyana. And so I struggled. But as far as why I do this work and who I am and all of that, I, I'm a founder and director of South Queens Women's March, which is a movement building organization in Richmond Hill and South Ozone Park and all parts of South Queens. But that's where we're mainly focused. I'm also a co-founder of Sadhana Coalition of Progressive Hindus, which is a Hindu social justice organization. And I write for the local West Indian newspaper. So I do a lot of different things in the community, maybe too many things. My hands are in too many different pots, right? But it's all because I see that our community is, it's worth all of this. It's worth us speaking up on all of these issues and paving the way for collective liberation. And I think we're getting there. I'm really excited about that. But that's just a little bit about who, I'm also uh, officially, professionally a, a lawyer. And I work for the city council. Peace, everyone. My name is Simone Davy Jingor, and I'm a co-founder and co-director of Jahaji Sisters. And um, I come to this work, I, I started doing movement building and social justice work as a teenager, and um, I grew up in the Bronx. My parents are from, are from Guyana, and um, you know, in the part of the Bronx that I grew up in, in Castle Hill, there, we were one of the first Indo-Caribbean families. There weren't many Indo-Caribbeans and people who looked like me, and so I found myself building solidarity with a lot of black and brown folks in my community. And, you know, I think I was really angry as a young person. I just saw a lot of injustice. I saw the way a lot of my peers were being racially profiled by the police. Um, in 1999, there was a police shooting. There was a shooting that happened of Amadou Diallo, who got shot 41 times in Soundview. It wasn't too far from where I lived. And I think that was like the moment that really politicized me and made me feel like, okay, I have to do something. And so I started organizing and becoming a part of Blackout Arts Collective. It was a space where I could be a creative, where I could be an educator, where I could be an activist, and really start dismantling the prison industrial complex and, and doing racial justice work. And um, I mean, I think I never really thought about gender justice. I think I saw it, I saw things playing out in my own family. Um, you know, I saw a lot of women who were dealing with domestic violence but I don't think I made the personal connection between racial justice and gender justice until I got older, until I found myself in a domestic violence situation as a young person, and, um, and just recognizing all the ways that I was struggling and needing support. Um, so I, I'd say gender justice work for me is, is deeply personal. I do it because it actually was my saving grace, and it's what 
inspires me to continue going, just seeing the power and resilience so many of the women in my own family have endured and the way they were able to get out of their own situations um, and teach me from their own strength. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon, Guyana Student Association. Do we got anyone from Burbies in the house? One person? Two people? Okay. Go back home and ask your parents where they're from. <laughs> so I'm Shivana Jorwar. I go by they and she pronouns. I am born and raised in the Bronx, New York. My parents are from Guyana, Georgetown, and Burbies. And uh, I come to this work as a queer, first-generation American, a feminist, a survivor, and someone who believes in unapologetically speaking truth to power. And uh, my journey really started when I was in high school, and it didn't start with gender, it started with race and immigration actually, because I was a sophomore when 9-11 happened. And I remember after the September 11th attacks, the ways that brown communities were being targeted with racial discrimination. And uh, I was so fearful for my own family, for my father who my uncles would joke looked like Osama bin Laden because he had you know, brown skin and the big beard and he was skinny, and there were men who looked like him being attacked in the trains, walking on the streets, and it became personal for me because of that fear, and also just identifying with people who had family members who were being deported, who had fathers and husbands disappearing because Homeland Security was coming in and doing what they did in the aftermath of that event and I started trying to figure out okay what am I going to do with this anger and this energy and I started volunteering with DRUM, DC's Rising Up and Moving which is a really fantastic working class for immigrant organization that we partner with a lot. We actually share an office with them and uh, I began to understand race and develop an analysis around social justice from there and uh, I also felt like the gender aspect wasn't there, and I was a survivor at the time. I had experienced sexual assault, and I was coming into my queerness and figuring that whole thing out and feeling like, okay, well, where is the space for me to talk about this? And then I found Saki for South Asian Women, which is a domestic violence organization that helps people in crisis. And I loved it. I learned about feminism in a real way for the first time and in a way where I could say, okay, this is not just a white people thing. <laughs> it can also be for women of color. I don't have to be scared of that F word, you know? Um, and yet, I felt left out as an Indo-Caribbean. I felt like it was very much catering to mainland South Asians, Indians, Pakistanis. Um, it was just Indians and Pakistanis at that time. Um, and uh, I felt like, damn, almost every Indo-Caribbean auntie I know has gone through abuse, you know, and it's such a large population in New York City, and uh, what are we doing? So I talked to the folks I was working at uh, Saki with, and they said, well, let's do outreach. Like, why don't you just be the outreach person <laughs> for Richmond Hill, where the Indo-Caribbean community is? So I started going to temples and talking about Saki services talking about what domestic violence is, and it was so scary. The community had way more taboo 
around this issue back then, and I remember little boys making fun of the fact that we were there, you know, and it just feeling so um, revolutionary to even say the word domestic violence in a temple space. It's different today. It's way different. I think the community has progressed on its own. I think the presence of Jahaji sisters has shifted it too. Um, I'm talking way too much, so I'm gonna try to wrap it up. Um, I'm also a lawyer. Mint and I actually have very similar backgrounds. I was a legislative lawyer for a long time in DC, worked with a lot of uh, reproductive justice and immigrant rights groups um, on the federal level and uh, did a lot of organizing nationally. And I'm super excited to have brought what I learned in that toolkit that I got from that work back to the community. Um, and it feels like home, it feels like I am on purpose, I am where I am supposed to be, and I am with who I am supposed to be with. <laughs> like, this is the crew right here. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I'm just so happy to be with all today. Thank you all so much for sharing some of your personal uh, journey with us. And I think it's, it's super helpful just to hear about um, the different paths you've taken and the different ways that um, things have intersected in your, in your pathway to get you to where you are today. So we definitely want to hear more about your organizations and the work that you're doing. And we thought we would ask um, to just, because there are so many issues, um, what do you see today um, in this moment as the most pressing issues of gender injustice facing Indo-Caribbean communities in New York City? And how does your work and your organization respond to these issues? It's such a great question. I was actually thinking about this on my way here. And I want to just add to something that Shivana said. When 9-11 happened, that was the year I graduated high school. And um, I remember going to LaGuardia. And full disclosure, I got accepted to the University of Buffalo. My dad said no because it was literally upstate. And he was like, why Wango live so far far? And I said, dad is for college. And he was like, no, you gotta take the train. I said, okay. And I remember being in the train and watching one of the towers getting hit. When I got to LaGuardia, they said school's canceled. I came out and it was just a sea of people. When I returned back, we started talking about why it happened. And I found myself in a classroom space having to defend being Muslim and being brown. And even within that space, Islamophobia was just so rampant. There was so much hate. And for almost two years, I couldn't get a job. Because when I sent my resume, it wasn't like it is now. You had to fax your resume everywhere. Uh, oh my God, I'm dating myself. Um, <laughs> but no one would call me back because it would say Muhammad Q Amin. And I was very unapologetic about my name. My name is my identity, it's my heritage. It's the name that was given to me by my parents and my grandfather who passed away. But it also was a reminder that as brown and Muslim folks, immigrant folks in this country, we were being policed and it continued, racial profiling became a major issue for our communities. And that was like the moment I realized that the Audre Lorde quote kept coming to my mind, we do not live single issue lives, right? And from that moment to where I am today 
in life and in organizing with Caribbean Equality Project, gender justice has also been a part of that. And thinking about all of the bills, currently there are over 426 anti-LGBTQ bills proposed in the United States. Many of those bills are attacking trans and non-binary people. Uh, many of them are preventing affirming healthcare. Many of them are also attacking LGBTQ youth. And we know that Indo-Caribbean people live throughout the US. Queer and trans Indo-Caribbean people exist and they also live throughout the US. And what we're seeing now is these legislations to criminalize our bodies is a direct correlation to also what, what's at stake for reproductive rights, right? And the same people that are funding anti-abortion laws, they are also funding anti-LGBTQ laws. So for the Caribbean Equality Project, for the past eight years, we have been talking about these intersectional issues. We have been organizing locally in Richmond Hill, Queens, during the pandemic, we've been able to continue to do that work virtually. One of the programs we have is our Unchained Support Group. It is the only Caribbean LGBTQ support group in New York City. And oftentimes, a support group is like 12 weeks. And it started out as a 12-week program. And it's just eight years running. Thank you. This year, we expanded our on-chain program into Brooklyn. We share space at the Brooklyn Community Pride Center in Crown Heights, and we have our on-chain program there. And when I think about gender justice, I think about the trans and non-binary immigrants that are coming from Guyana. I'm thinking about the asylum seekers. Many of our community members that we support are undocumented queer and trans people from the Caribbean. These are the folks that are on the front lines that are most vulnerable, most vulnerable but they're also the least community members to get support. Currently in New York City, there's a lack of immigration services for asylum seekers. And during the pandemic, we saw that if you were undocumented, you received very little government resources. Um, and think about what many of us had to go through during the pandemic. Some of our community members lost their jobs, right? And how do we protect those that lost their jobs? Um, and I know Jahaji's sister has been doing a lot of work with the Fund Excluded Workers Coalition. Caribbean Equality Project also recently joined that coalition to really advocate for our undocumented community members. How many of you know what the Fund Excluded Workers Coalition is? So it is the only coalition in New York State that is advocating for undocumented workers. And back when the pandemic started, our undocumented workers had no choice to continue working. Some of them lost their jobs because they were disposable. Companies never didn't need them anymore. And they had to also put their bodies online again to find work to provide their families. And for folks who got laid off, they received a government check. They received a stimulus check. Undocumented folks did not receive that check. And that also impacts our LGBTQ community. I think about a, a, a Tiffany Monroe, who is our trans justice coordinator. Tiffany had a warehouse job, and she was harassed for her gender identity. And when she spoke up, she was terminated without any warning. And we know that that was an act of anti-transgender discrimination, gender identity discrimination. But because Tiffany 
didn't have a documentation status, it was easier for her employer to fire her. Um, so it's super important for us when we talk about gender justice, we're talking about labor laws, we're talking about employment rights, we're talking about immigration and what that looks like, we're talking about how to protect our aunties and uncles that are undocumented but may not have access to technology to learn about services that New York City offers. All right, so I'm actually gonna backstep a little bit just to talk a little bit more about how I got to gender justice work, because I don't think I expressly talked about that earlier. I'm a survivor as well of gender-based violence, teen dating violence, so I, um, you know, my first real relationship in life was when I was in high school, or you know, I had randomly met people on AIM before and all that stuff. AIM, do you all know what AIM is? Okay, uh, but you know, maybe met them once or twice at a coffee shop, and, but never materialized, but I had this boyfriend, and at first it was amazing, uh, as teen love can be, and I, I had actually known because his family, his dad's side is from the same village in Guyana that my parents are from, so they knew of these, these families, and um, my parents actually didn't know about it at first, but then once they found out, they were like, you know, actually his mom was in a domestic abuse situation, and I, we, they were like, you should not be with this guy, and they were very adamant, I'm like, no, he's not like that. Right, and I, I really fought against it. Lo and behold, a couple years later, it got really bad. It got really abusive, verbally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of that. And I had to struggle to get out of it. And I remember missing my very last day of high school because I tried to take my own life. And I was in the hospital. And I think at that point, I had reached somewhat of a breaking point, but I still stayed with him even after that um, because the power and control was real. And ever since then, I had been struggling to try to find my sense of community and, and my sense of self. I'm glad that I'm here now, and I've, I feel like I'm getting there. I'm getting, getting to find that. And I sought out resources, including Jahaji Sisters. And I remember being much younger and much different than I am now and sitting at a Women's Empowerment Summit and really wanting to step out and cry, but being so inspired by some really amazing leaders like the two that are sitting to my left and thinking, hey, you know, maybe one day I'm gonna get out of this. Maybe one day I could even be a leader, like the teacher that said I would never be. And um, so my work and my gender justice work is really informed by all of that, by my lived experience, by having witnessed family violence and violence in my own life. And I, at Sadhana, which is the organization that I co-founded with my husband, shout out to Rohan, who's here as well, in 2011, Sadhana, through Sadhana, I organized healthy relationship workshops at our local library. I did biannual outreaches on Liberty Avenue. Sometimes it was just literally three of us that would walk up and down the avenue and give out information about the mayor's office to end gender-based violence because in our community, community members, especially those who are undocumented, may not want to access help from the government for really real reasons, for really justifiable reasons. But when there's somebody from their community who looks like them, who says, look, it's safe, and they're not gonna use your status against you, it makes it that much more likely that they're going to access that help. Because the reality is many of our community-based organizations are not in the space to be able to provide all of those direct services. And certainly at that time, we weren't in that, in that space, but we're getting there. And so I used to do this, we used to go to bars, we used to go to rum shops, we used to go to barber shops and hair salons and 
all the places, have really, really sometimes difficult conversations with people about domestic violence and gender-based violence. And I remember, and I've said this before, I remember there was this auntie, this actually not an auntie, more like grandma, who held my hand when I was telling her, you know, about domestic violence and the resources. And she's like, Bet, Womigatelli. She said something like, I'm on my last lap. Like she's about, she's like, you know, I'm old. And my husband has been abusing me for ever since I can remember. What can I do about it? And she's like, can I get your phone number? And I was kind of cut up. I was like, because uh, I'm just this one per person who's trying to raise awareness about domestic violence. And at the time, there was really no infrastructure in place to, to provide resources as people that look, look like us. And I gave her my phone number. And I never heard from her again. And I think about her as we do this work all the time. Like, whatever happened to her, you know? Did she ever get out of that relationship? Probably not. And um, over the years, I just thought it was important to do more movement building in the community and do it from a place that also was intersectional. I think it's important to identify the fact that as immigrant communities, we neighbor each other, but we don't always work with each other, right? So the South Asian population, the Indo-Caribbean population of South Queens, we often don't work with our black neighbors and we're experiencing the very same types of issues and so South Queens Women's March has been a proactive response to all of the issues that show up in our communities, in particular domestic violence. And the way we have responded to that in kind is through meeting community members where they are. So a community member who's experiencing violence might not come to a panel discussion about domestic violence because that's practically like wearing a sticker on, on yourself saying, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm experiencing domestic violence, and they may not be allowed to, right? They may not be allowed to go to such a setting, but they might get on a food pantry line, and they might receive a bag of groceries, and inside that bag of groceries might be a brochure that talks about all the resources that are available to them related to gender-based violence, and they might put that in their bag and eventually make a phone call that could change their life forever. And so when we do this work, we're, we're thinking intentionally about how to meet community where they are, be in spaces all the time, all of us table at Lefferts and Liberty Avenue so frequently. And years ago, you never saw that. When I was growing up, you never saw the types of activities that we're doing in the community. It is so moving and it's so powerful. There's also a lot of street harassment right at Lefferts and Liberty and so many other places, which some of you may be familiar with. And um, that's against women and girls and, and gender expansive folks, LGBTQ folks, it's, it's too much. And so at South Queens Women's March, we have been raising our voices by literally chalking up the streets and writing messages all across South Queens about why this should not happen. Uh, also, sexual assault and uh, family violence and sexual harassment is real, even in, in our families, right? I think about even the, the way sometimes uncles look at you, it's like that's not acceptable, right? And how do we stand up against this? How do we start talking about this in a very public way um, to have these types of cultural behaviors end once and for all. And it's not easy. For, by, by no means is it easy, but, but we're doing that. We're creating healing spaces, art, art workshops. Access to the arts is really important in our community, and we don't necessarily have a lot of outlets. And I know all of us have been working hard on, on making that different for our community. So that's just some of the ways that South Queens Women's March has been able 
to address gender injustice and also building political power too, which I'll talk about later. But one of the, one of the biggest issues as well is the spaces of leadership are not necessarily open to us, right? We get shut out so easily. I, I, I get more access in, in some ways because I've been involved in my temple communities. I, folks know me because I sing bhajans in, in, the, in, the, in the temple, right? But the moment I try to wear my activist hat is the moment they're like, okay, what's she gonna say on the microphone right now? And the other thing is, you know, trying to mobilize the leaders of those temples, for example, and those faith-based institutions to rise up and talk about these issues, that's really hard. They'll give you the microphone and you can talk about it, but they themselves may not be the champions. So what we're doing to really shift those cultures and make them the champions as well, equip them with the tools to not continue to perpetuate these cycles of violence is, is really critical. Thank you, Aminta. I'm just so proud that I get to sit here with my friends and comrades um, because we do this work together. Um, and it's like a family celebration right now. So anyways, I just wanted to say that. So you asked the question of like, what's the biggest issue in our community? <coughs> and it's gender-based violence. And Aminta touched on this a bit, but that's the reason why Jahaji started. In 2007, you know, we lost, I mean, we've lost a lot of Indo-Caribbean women in our community in really public and horrendous ways. But in 2007, I just feel like it's always important to, to name the names of the young women that we've lost. Um, in March, we had Natasha Raymond, who was murdered by her alleged rapist, who was undocumented when she came to the U.S., got connected by her family to a family friend, and you know he was helping her to find an apartment and then ended up sexually assaulting her and raping her. And it, sorry, trigger warning. And it wasn't until she had her status that she finally had the courage to, to file um, a police report. And he was, he was arrested. And when he was released on bail, he found her as she was getting ready to leave for work and he took her life. And I think for us, that was just such an eye-opening moment because here was this really public incident that made the newspapers, right? It was in the Daily News, it was in the New York Post, but yet no one was talking about it. We were calling each other up, like, have you heard about this? Have you heard about this? But, you know, when we started doing this work, there weren't any other one, anyone else doing it, right? Our community was all of the older men, you know, and kudos to them because they did hard work to, to build up our community and to get it to where it is in terms of cultural preservation. And they did some civic engagement work, but they were silent when a young woman was killed. And we just felt like in that moment, we had to step up, we had to do something. We started organizing immediately, you know, coming together, creating a space where women and girls and gender expansive folks could come and could actually talk about patriarchy I mean, there was never a space where folks could actually talk about patriarchy, talk about the way that our culture is actually perpetuating these unhealthy gender norms that are actually the roots of gender-based violence, right? And um, I remember there were uncles that were dropping their wives off and they were trying to come into the space. We held it at the Bhubanesh Ramandir. Um, it was our first Indo-Caribbean Women's Empowerment Summit and we had to actually turn the men away and say, no, this is a women's only space. And that was like an intergenerational space where we had young people, we had older women. And for the first time, I heard aunties share that they were in DV situations and, and actually break that silence. And there's something so empowering about being able to share your story 
and to say that I'm a survivor and to break the silence. Because for a very long time, even talking about gender-based violence was such a taboo, right? It was seen as a home issue. It was seen as something that you sweep under the carpet and you don't talk about. Even in my own family, no one ever spoke publicly about what we were noticing and seeing, right? It was kind of like this hush-hush thing. Um, so I think through the work, not I think, I know through the work that we've all been doing these last few years, we've actually made this an issue that folks can actually talk about more publicly. Um, most recently, we lost Donna Rahana Dojoy, who was another young Guyanese immigrant um, who had her life taken and then her partner took his life as well. And, you know, Jahaji Sisters is here because we know that healing is so important. As survivors, as, as my own, I'm a survivor as well. I, when I speak about my own lived experience as a survivor, I know about the shame. I know about the isolation. I know about the power and control that comes from being in that and how, how scary and, and, and isolating it can be, right? And I just don't want anyone else to have to ever go through that. And so Jahaji is here so that we can create a healing space for, for survivors to name what they're going through, to get community support, to see themselves and other faces that look just like them, and to hear that they're not alone. Because what we need when we're going through domestic violence and intimate partner violence is community support. Um, and also to just, there's so many new immigrants that we've been working with, women who've just come from Guyana, who've just come from Trinidad, who are in a city that is huge, who don't know how to navigate the city, who are also dealing with um, gender-based violence, and they were also dealing with it back home, and coming to the U.S. was the way that they were able to find safety. And so one of the, we're doing a lot of things to address this issue, but one of the main things that we've been doing since the pandemic is direct service work, because we find that we can't just ask women to come and organize with, that, with us without actually meeting them where they're at. And so we've been connecting with a lot of folks and just providing emotional support, getting them connected to the resources that they need, making sure that they're getting cash assistance, making sure that they're getting money to pay their rent, to pay their groceries, that we can do safety planning with them. And then that's the pathway for how we can bring them into our organizing work. I'm going to pass it to Shiv because I know she's going to speak some more of this. Yeah, thank you so much, Simone. And I'll second all of the things that these brilliant leaders have already shared and just talk a little bit about two things. One is uh, feminist leadership in our community and the leadership of women and gender expansive folks. I feel like even though we exist, South Queens Women's March exists and we've come a long way, there is this view of uh, us that, you know, well, okay, they're over there doing their cute little thing, <laughs> you know, and not a deep understanding of how much power we actually have and the resources that we have, um, and understanding of uh, how we are like, really shifting the paradigm in the community and changing people's lives every day. Simone or someone from our team is talking to someone in crisis and literally changing their life and making sure that they are pulled out of dangerous situations where they could be a Natasha Raman or a Rihanna Dojoy, right? Um, so please tell people about us, tell people about the good work. I feel like that is a challenge that we face and part of it is because people do not respect women's leadership, especially when it is a young woman. I just watched at the Pagua Parade yesterday 
um, afterwards at the celebration, the uh, um, assemblywoman from that district got on stage and, you know, she's done a lot of work, you know, politics aside, she's done a lot of work to get to where she is and like any assembly member in state legislature, she should command respect. And uh, one of the uncles that was in the committee introduced her by just saying, I'm so proud to be on stage with this beautiful woman. I am like, you know, if that is not indicative of the way that women are seen and regarded in our community, I don't know what is. Because if it was a man, I do not think that that would have been the case. I think it would have been, you know, this is a gentleman of distinction and I am so proud to be here next to him and to have a relationship with him. And my heart just sank. Again, politics aside, we don't necessarily <laughs> agree or are not big fans of that assembly member, but I saw that and uh, my heart shook. And, uh, you know, want to share that anecdote and want to uh, just say, you know, we need to shift how we value and how we see women and girls and gender expansive folks in the community. Um, and the other thing is, uh, Economic liberation is so key to not just gender justice, but justice for everyone, right? Because at the end of the day, this system, this economic capitalist system that we are in, a system that demands hierarchy, is uh, dividing us, is creating racism, is creating sexism, is deepening all of the isms so that it can continue to survive and people who are in power can continue to be in power. And I feel like any organization that is doing social justice work, liberation work, if it is not addressing the economic circumstances, the work is only going to be, you know, top level. At the end of the day, we've seen, you know, the women that Simone was talking about that lost their lives to domestic violence. They lost their lives because they were in economically unsustainable situations, right? They were not independent, right? They had, uh, they were undocumented, they didn't have access to their own money, and time and time again, we talk to folks who are in dangerous situations because of that. And so one of the things that Jahaji does is yes, we give cash assistance, we give emergency, emergency checks, usually it's 500, it can go above that, um, depending on what the situation is. But we're also trying to build uh, people's ability to survive on their own, connect them to jobs, uh, teach them how to build their own businesses, right? And uh, build their skill set so that they can go out and be independent and not be in these situations. And we're also just trying to turn the system upside down, right? The coalition that Mohammed talked about, the Excluded Workers Coalition, the thing that we're working on right now is providing unemployment benefits for undocumented folks, which might not sound sexy, but it's freaking groundbreaking. <laughs> like this could be, <laughs> because what that would do would make New York State the first state that does this and break the barrier with unemployment assistance but also break the barrier with all different kinds of assistance, right? Because once you crack one thing, other doors start opening. And undocumented folks, immigrants, are locked out of so many programs and benefits. If they have access to that, it would lift so many communities up across the country. And it would promote equity, um, you know, and, and just allow our people to not just survive, but thrive, which is what we want, right? I am 
Like, I'm so sick and tired of uh, seeing people in violent situations, in unhappy situations, you know, in, in depressive states because they cannot afford to pay rent. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. And these are our members and people that you know, I love and have relationships with and they feel like second family. I have family members that are in that position too, you know, and we have to talk about it. And I think our community also has a big stigma around talking about economic struggle, right? We are part of, uh, you know, the model minority myth. I don't know if folks are aware of what that is, but Asian Americans in uh, this country have bought into this idea that they're a model minority, <laughs> you know? They're not like Latinos, they're not like African Americans, they're better, right? And a lot of our people feel the same way. I have my own parents, <laughs> you know, and folks in my family that I contend with all the time that feel the same way. Why don't other people just work harder? Like, do you understand what slavery did to this country, <laughs> you know, and how it just, you know, decimated people's ability to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and it's wanting to feel, right, like you're better than other people because of your own insecurities about what you're struggling with, right? Like it's an ego thing. Um, and I feel like that ego thing keeps us from talking about what we're actually going through and how are you gonna fix things if you're not talking about it, if you're not uncovering it and you're pretending like everything is fine, like we're good. No, we're not good, <laughs> you know? So yes, these are some of the things that I feel like we need to be talking about, we need to be shifting. And uh, it takes, I think, convenings like this and uh, people daring to have conversations with each other. So now we would like to open the floor to the students and attendees to have a discussion with our panelists. Please feel free to ask any questions or share any thoughts on what the, sh the speakers have shared. Thank you. You're in like the furthest corner away from the stage. Good afternoon. Thank you to the event organizers, to GSA. I'm just gonna contradict my brother Muhammad here. So we went to Queens College at around the same time. And there in fact was a GSA. It just wasn't very good. <laughs> they did car washes and blasted Rupee and Beanie Man in student union basement for hours and hours. Um, but the president married a doctor, just so you know. So the president of GSA turned out pretty well. Uh, he married a doctor. Um, but So to the panelists, amazing presentation. I loved it. Uh, it was great. Um, and I, there's so much we can talk about. about and, and, and Simone touched on DV. So I think the question here is, um, how do we get like cisgender men in this room? Because I kind of see that's the one thing. You know, there's there's progressive women. There's you know people who are not cisgender men, and they're the ones kind of doing all the abusing and 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 all the making all the mischief. Um, so that would be my question. And and second question would be uh, as 
nonprofit organizing evolves, how do you see the power of storytelling um, evolve with the progress of nonprofits? Actually, you know, just in the interest of time, before you respond, I'm curious if anyone else has any questions we could just put out. Okay, great. Any other hands while I'm making my, okay. I'm just gonna loop back from the back. Firstly, thank you so much for sharing all your stories. It's really important and it's hard and I acknowledge that it's not easy to you know, speak about those things in a forum like this. So really grateful for those stories. Um, I have a quick question just about uh, how do you, uh, going off of your question about storytelling and nonprofit, um, how do you see the intersection of your grassroots organizing work and your nonprofit organizations in the sphere of research and what it means to represent uh, Indo-Caribbean communities in research in ways that are affirming and strengths-based and um, don't separate them from the reality that they live and don't couch them within ideas that are very rooted in white supremacy and how white people look at Indo-Caribbean communities in this country. Yeah. Um, also, yes, thank you for doing the work that you do because it wouldn't start with no one if it wasn't for someone to step up to really voice out the opinions of people. Um, there was a statement that was said that I truly do agree with. Um, when it comes to organizers and stuff, there's so many organizations out there and they're all small, but if you think about it in a bitter aspect, if it's an organization of another race or culture comes together and we can all come together because we all have differences, but we're all similar at the same time, I feel like that's like our weak spot that we never get to talk to other communities out there that are the same way as us. Um, and coming from a family that is full of cops, which makes it very interesting for my mindset for me being an activist outside in the world. Um, I wanted to know like, what is like uh, something that advice that you could give someone who's going through it when you know you're the only activist in the family full of a lot of people that to look at you differently in the world? Okay, um, I'm gonna respond to Rohan's questions first. You know, I think um, one of the things that cisgender men can do as someone that identifies as cisgender is to hold space for us to talk about these issues. I remember when Donna Jojoy was murdered, um, Jahaji's sister organized a summit and Will Deepu and I um, facilitated a workshop called Pull Up Your Brethren. And this is like also using language to hold um, men accountable for acts of violence, verbal, physical, emotional, um, economic. And I also wanna add immigration violence to that. Um, many people don't necessarily know that in order for you to leave any type of sexual and uh, emotional violence situation, you have to be able to have your documents. And at Caribbean Equality Project, we have seen even within queer relationships that now there's the fiance visa. We've seen folks 
go to places like Trinidad and Guyana and everywhere else and be able to like get a fiance, but when they come to the US, they take away their passport. And imagine not being able to leave a relationship because you don't have documents in the US. Um, so I wanna add immigration violence to that. Um, to the question around academia, I think about Indo-Caribbean history in academia, I think about Rajiv Mahabir, I think about Ryan Persadi in Toronto. These are queer Indo-Caribbean academics that have been in a lot of ways leading academic spaces, writing about Indo-Caribbean history. Um, Ryan Persadi just produced a film called Gyal, talking about the issues of domestic violence and sexual violence within the Indo-Caribbean community, but do it in a way that uses drag to talk about these issues that have long existed in our communities. Um, I think about, you know, when Rajiv writes about, in his memoir, um, titled Antiman, talking about using language that invokes um, a sense of conversation around these words. And when we talk about street harassment, I can't tell y'all how many times I've walked down Liberty Avenue and been called an anti-man. Like this is the type of street harassment and violence that takes place in our community. But when we think about cisgender men, we also have to think about the power of language. Every single person has the power to change someone's mind by simply hold them accountable. If you hear language that is racist, transphobic, uh, homophobic, sexism, it is your responsibility as a person to object and say, hey, that's offensive. Like you should not be using that language. And if they don't know why it's offensive, you could also do the labor to like educate them, right? Um, and I think also about your question around how to hold folks within your family. In my family, I've been that person. I've been that organizer, that activist. Um, and you know, I'll say that I am the embodiment of my ancestors' defiance, struggles, and resilience. And for many queer Indo-Caribbean people, we still don't have mainstream representation. I didn't grow up hearing about Indo-Caribbean, queer Indo-Caribbean folks coming to a classroom, sharing their experiences. Um, so I, I wanna let the Guyanese Association know that this work that y'all are doing now, it is so revolutionary to create space at Queens College for these conversations to happen. Thank you, Mo. He's really incredible and an inspiration to me through all of my work too. So I'm trying to remember all the questions. One was Rohan's question about how to, how can cisgender men get involved? So just get involved. I mean, I think, I think that the challenge is that oftentimes women-led organizations are expected to be the ones at the forefront of these conversations. And as we should be, right, because we're disproportionately impacted by them, but on the other hand, but equally important is for those who may be perpetrators of violence, disproportionately cisgender men, to rise up. And that's not on us. We can't be expected to, to take responsibility and to do all of this. It creates too much of a burden on our shoulders to have to respond in turn to all these things. And burnout is real. So I think 
for cisgender men, uh, just one, being an upstander and standing for the ideals that Mo just mentioned earlier, and creating spaces to meaningfully talk about these issues. Um, I think at that same, at the Donna Rehana Dojo's vigil, I think one of the things that came up was pull up your brethren, right? And, and making sure that you hold your friends accountable. When you're having a drink with them, for example, and they say something that's out of turn, you need to hold them accountable and not laugh back. And I see that happen too often in our community, and it's perpetuating the same cycles of violence. If we want this to truly end, we've got to rise up and we've got to speak out. And that includes speaking out against our family, against our family members sometimes. And I think there's a delicate balance, right? Because if you want to actually make change, sometimes that requires having a conversation with somebody that you really don't want to have the conversation with. It, it sometimes means putting your own ideals sort of at the back burner for a minute to just open the door. Get the door open first and then start to have those conversations to affect change. I think when Shivana was talking about the model minority and I think of all the people in our community who have gate, been doing a lot of gatekeeping, who don't let us in to have these conversations and a lot of them are cisgender men a lot of them are, uh, they're more inclined to support the white politician as opposed to the black politician. And um, they're more inclined to, I know we shouldn't get politics involved here, but they're more inclined to run the Republican route as opposed to uh, the Democratic route. And you know, I think, I think it's interesting when you look at the, the increase of, we talked, there was a New York Times article a couple weeks ago about the rise of um, Republicans amongst Asian American communities. And the New York Times contacted me about this because I'm from South Ozone Park. And I'm not gonna lie, it's really scary to see how a lot of folks, a lot of businessmen in our community in particular are, are really corralling behind certain candidates that don't serve our interests. And so we've gotta really tap into their leadership because they are leaders in our community and they have access to so many people and really think about how we can flip the switch and have meaningful conversations. South Queens Women's March works really hard to be inclusive and we've had conversations about toxic masculinity. We even created brochures on toxic masculinity to give out to barber shops in the community about how men can uh, check themselves and think about the ways in which they perpetuate some of these behaviors. So you know, these are all ways we need to, we need to figure out uh, to, to mobilize and to, to change these cycles of violence. On your question about research, so one of the challenges as um, Indo-Caribbean leaders here is access to resources and access to funding. I think we're seeing a change, we're seeing a zeitgeist where because we're getting more politically powerful and people cannot ignore us anymore, we're starting to get those resources. But at the same time, one of the things that we really lack, like when I write grant proposals, it's really hard to find any access to metrics or to, to research and analysis that can back up the fact that we need those resources. And it's, it's really, really challenging. And so that makes research that most, much more important. And that's where the grassroots organizing and the research, research to me intersects. Actually, Anlisa Altar, who was a student here, she did a, a needs assessment survey and led that for South Queens Women's March because we're trying to get an understanding of what our community needs from the grassroots and quantify that. And that takes, unfortunately, that takes more time. You know, you, it's sometimes easier to just give someone a bag of groceries and, you know, and have them carry on with their day 
it's harder to ask them more questions. And, and that could also feel invasive as well. So that's why it's so important for it's, this all to be culturally responsive. We want people from our communities uh, who look and feel and talk like our communities to be the ones leading that research, which is why more and more students should rise up and, and see the value in, in this type of research. And then to your question about family members and friends and pushing the, pushing the needle, these spaces are, are really hard. Sometimes it ends up in a situation where there's just no meeting of the minds and it's just like, we're not, this is not productive. And this isn't going anywhere. And it's become toxic. And it comes to a point where you just have to make a choice, right? But one would hope that we love each other enough to be able to have conversations with one another that may be difficult. And also, I think we could be on the streets, you know, preaching what we preach and fighting for what we fight for. But if members of our own family are the ones perpetuating that violence and that hate, then we're, what's our work really about? Right? So, so we really have to think about that and be really intentional when we're meeting with our family members at family gatherings. When we think, I go to family gatherings and I hear certain songs that are so deeply patriarchal, so deeply homophobic, and you know, go up to the DJ and say, turn off that song. Do you know what this means? Um, and, and really holding folks accountable in, in these spaces is the way we're going to shift the narratives, but we've got to keep doing that even if it's hard, even if people look at us a different way. We've got to be those people. I was going to say, as someone who's been organizing for a hot minute, the hardest place to organize has been my own family. Um, yeah, but I think I've been that person. My older sister has always been that person where we just see things happening and we just feel a responsibility to push back. And sometimes if we're not pushing back and we're not being courageous to stand up and not be, you know, to not call it in, then it's gonna keep happening. Like in my family, we had an uncle who um, was molesting a lot of the young women and like no one ever wanted to talk about it until it was like in our face. And I'm like, we can't tolerate things like this anymore. Like some of the most harmful and painful and traumatic things that you know are happening in our own families and it's it's a microcosm of what's happening in the in the bigger community right so we have to just be courageous and we have to actually do the work of of calling it in when we see it even as hard as it is um, and that is actually what will help us to do the work in the larger space and our larger community too um, and in terms of research I mean I think as Indo-Caribbeans, we are a hella large community. We're one of the third largest immigrant groups in Queens, and it still amazes me when people don't know who we are. I'm like, how do you not know what an Indo-Caribbean person is, you know, or our history? And like, I feel like I'm constantly in this place of having to school people. So for those of you who have an interest in research, do it. We need more data, we need more um, research in our community. And I think it's, 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 it's up to our generation to do it because it's, like, it's, it's, go it's only going to help us to create more visibility and to have the organizations that are on the ground doing the work be able to grow and expand. Uh, yeah, I think I'm complete. I'm not sure, I can't remember the other questions. I'll just expand a little bit on the, the data point. Like, absolutely, we need more research about our community because 
outside of New York City, don't nobody know what an Indo-Caribbean is, <laughs> you know? And part of teaching people that we exist so that we can get what we need is uh, unfortunately putting ourselves on paper and getting us in the journal publications and in the textbooks and in you know political memos, et cetera. And so it's so deeply needed. We also did a needs assessment survey not too long ago and talked with 250 members of the community. And it was really hard. We're a small nonprofit. It is not what we do. It's not an area of expertise for us. But no one else is out there doing it. So if you are in that field and you do have expertise and you want to partner with us, like, let's talk. Because it is going to help. Not, honestly, not even just our community, but the communities that are adjacent to us as well, like Immigrant NYC, right? And uh, the other thing is that there is a research and academic work out there about our community that just doesn't get out to the people. I mean, we're pretty in the work, and I learn about things every now and again that make me go, whoa, how did I not know that was out there? Suzanne Prasard, who is one of our founding board members, she is a professor, and she has published work about um, queerness in our ancestral history back during the days of indentureship, and I did not know <laughs> um, that that was out there. And so, you know, how do we make the connections and bridge so that that is part of the um, you know, legacy that we pass on so we don't have to feel like we're the first ones because, you know, we're not. Um, and how do those stories get unearthed and told? Um, and then on being the only activist in the community, I still have an auntie that asks me every time she sees me, how is saving the whales going? <laughs> like, I don't know what she thinks. She thinks I'm on the corner taking signatures or something. Uh, I mean, wait, I am sometimes, but... <laughs> You know, they have this idea that if you work in a nonprofit, if you're doing social justice work, you can only do it in a volunteer capacity and it is not real work. And part of it is because our communities were, you know, hustling and doing cultural work, cultural preservation work for such a long time, um, you know, on the side, in addition to their full time job, right? And now, we are established more, we're able to gather resources. Like, this is our full-time job. Like, we are blessed to be able to do that, and our community deserves it. Our community deserves to have people who are dedicated to serving them every day, you know, and not this, like, you know, if I have time situation on the weekends. Like, we need and deserve that, and we do not have enough. Um, and our our families need to understand that and get behind it. And as I really want my own family to get invested in uplifting our people. Um, and so I try to talk about it <laughs> as much as possible. And I try to tell them the meetings that we're doing with elected officials and the coalition work we're doing so that they understand it's not just like standing on the corner with a sign by myself <laughs> or something. You know, they understand it is real work. Um, and that's a culture shift. It's a real culture shift. Um, doing this work, I mean, it's also not easy. Like, I'm not gonna lie, you are not going to bring in as much money as you would if you were in the for-profit world, uh, you know? But it is so gratifying and so 
you know, I, my heart feels full every time we meet with our members and I have to just, you know, give thanks that I am able to do this work and that feeling is something that, you know, nothing can buy, you know, so. I encourage you all <laughs> to get into this kind of work if you're interested, and also talk to us about our, our experiences for real talk, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, from Order of Shivana to Muhammad, one last question. <coughs> what advice do you have for those of us who would want to get involved in work to address gender injustice? So, I'd love to have some summer interns. If anyone is interested <laughs> in that, please talk to us. Um, we definitely also, like I said, need research support. And uh, um, I think just, you know, learn about what's out there. Talk to folks, learn about the organizations that are out there. Um, think about what's not out there that you might want to start, like all of us, right? Um, because uh, we all know there's a plethora of things that go unaddressed and believe in yourself, like you can definitely do it. Don't let white supremacy tell you or patriarchy tell you that you are not capable. Every single one of you, you came here today, right? You could be anywhere else, you could be like having a snack right now, but you came here today because there's a fire in you, I think, <laughs> right? And that is all you need. That is really all you need, use it feed the fire, read things, watch things that are gonna keep your spirit going is, is not easy work, you do need that, and uh, build community around you, like other people that are into the same thing that can help you keep that momentum and keep going. Um, I think the advice I have for anyone here who's interested in doing social justice or organizing work is that I'm not gonna like, you know, sugarcoat it and say it's easy. It is hard work that can be very draining. And, you know, we need to have mechanisms for taking care of ourselves too. So I feel like I'm so amazed by Gen Z. I feel, I feel really old right now saying this, but I feel really amazed by Gen Z because like they actually know what to say that they need boundaries or they need to rest. And I think that's actually the way that we're gonna dismantle capitalism and a very white supremacist culture, you know? Like this idea that you have to keep going, going, going and working and working and being productive is actually not healthy, you know? But that is what we're taught, that's what we're taught in Indo-Caribbean culture. Like so much of my own perfectionism and workaholism comes from watching the way my mom had to work as a working class mother, you know, as my, the way my grandmother used to have to work. And I would just say that we don't have to be that way anymore. We can actually be different. So I would push you to think about that as you're thinking about the careers you wanna go into and, and to just think about what are the ways that you, the small ways that you can rebel and, and say, um, I can be different, you know? And I can also take care of myself while I'm doing that. Echoing that, and I have a really hard time doing what Simone just said. And, and I think a big part of that is just how we're raised, right? I remember my grandma used to always say every morning, early, early to bed, early to rise, mix the, something like that, right? And so I was hardwired to think that if you take a little extra rest on a Saturday morning, you're doing something so wrong. You're not being productive. Uh, so yes, totally self-care, totally protecting yourself against burnout, not taking the call if you don't have the mental capacity to take the call and waiting until you do have that mental capacity. Um, gender justice work is really hard. 
it's, it's draining, and there is also such a thing as toxic organizing. And like intern, like, you know, competition amongst nonprofits that are doing the same work. I remember when I had the idea to start South Queens Women's March, one of the first people I called was Shivana Jorwar. And instead of telling me, don't do this, or like, this is, we're already doing gender justice work, or something that she could have said, Shivana was like, you should do this, and gave me advice on how I should go about doing it, right? And, and that's the kind of leadership we need in gender justice organizing. Because one of the things, and as, as people that have been historically oppressed, we think that we need to compete for the same resources, right? We think we need to make sure that we're getting the grant, and they're not getting the grant, that we're marketing this way, and like, it's, it's, like, it's, just, it's a lot. It can be a lot, and that's not just the case with gender justice organizing. It's a, across the board with all nonprofit organizing. Nonprofits are corporations, and, and that's just the unfortunate reality of the way the systems were set up. And unfortunately, that's what we have. Um, that's the, the entities that we, we have at our disposal right now. But we have to think about the ways in which white supremacy sleeps into that, and all of the ways in which we end up being pitted against one another. And this dates back to our colonial histories as Indo-Caribbean people, right? So we really have to be mindful of that and intentional about our organizing, taking care of ourselves. We also need interns, so, and, and we need folks to join our movement, right? So South Queens Women's March, we do a lot of mostly volunteer work right now. Some of you have volunteered with us in the past, and so if you wanna get more involved, you can visit our website and sign up to get involved. We have a really beautiful um, thing going. And one, if you join, you'll, you'll see that and feel that firsthand. So that's, that's what I would recommend. Amazing. Um, I'm, so I will say gender justice work can also look like building political power. And if you are a registered voter, you should also mush up the vote. Uh, for us at Caribbean Equality Project, building political power really looks like getting our community members to go out there and vote for progressive candidates that will create legislation that protects all of us, including those who are undocumented. Um, and in terms of research, I wanted to add one of the things that Caribbean Equality Project did in 2020 during the pandemic is to encourage community members to participate in the census. And that, that was the first time that you were able to write in Indo-Caribbean as a nationality. And that information is still not available for political reasons, but when it does become available and it's delineated, we will get an approximate of how many Indo-Caribbean people live in New York City and New York State based on the census. Um, but locally, if you are eligible to vote, please go out and vote. We have a city council election that's happening, which is coming up on June 27th. Um, we, as organizers, Caribbean Equality Project, South Queens Women's March, have been doing a lot of redistricting work and learning about how district lines are drawn um, really helps to understand how our communities continues to be politically disenfranchised. And uh, it's important to just speak up against it. Gender justice is not just an, a theory that we work around just about gender, but it could also be about building political power and making sure that our communities get the resources that we are deserving of. Um, and we shouldn't never, we should never have to travel 
outside of our communities to access resources. Um, so thank you to everyone for organizing this event. Um, and if you haven't connected with Caribbean Equality Project, search us on Facebook, Instagram, at Caribbean Equality Project. Um, and thank you for those who volunteered with us during our holiday pantry distributing um, food in 2021 and 2020 as well. So thank you again. Thank you all so much for coming and thank you again to our wonderful panelists um, for being here today at Queens College for this conversation on gender justice in Indo-Caribbean communities. Thank you to Yashoda, um, Debbie Bayal, and the Guyanese Students Association for all your work, especially for your um, feedback in developing the questions for our panelists, so thank you. Um, we're gonna get kicked out of this room in like 30 seconds, so I'm gonna just um, say to everyone that you know, please feel free to grab some beverages and cookies on your way out. If you're interested to learn more about these organizations, please look them up on social media and connect with them. You can also take my business card that's up on the table if you want to write to me. I can also help facilitate connections um, to things that are on campus as well as off campus, including these organizations. So please stay in touch with us. And um, thank you, thanks, have a great day.